0: Chapter 53, The Gam The ostensible reason why Ahab did not go on board of the whaler we had spoken of was this. The wind and sea betokened storms. But even had this not been the case, he would not at all, perhaps, have boarded her, judging by his subsequent conduct on similar occasions. If so, it had been that, by the process of hailing, he had obtained a negative answer to the question he put. For, as it eventually turned out, he cared not to consort, even for five minutes, with any stranger captain, except he could contribute some of that information he so absorbingly sought. But all this remained inadequately estimated, were not something said here of the particular usages of whaling vessels when meeting each other in foreign seas, and especially on common cruising grounds. If two strangers crossing the Pine Barrens in New York State, or the equally desolate Salisbury Plain in England, if casually encountering each other in such inhospitable wilds. These twain, for the life of them, cannot well avoid a mutual salutation, and stopping for a moment to interchange the news, and, perhaps, sitting down for a while and resting in concert. Then, how much more natural than upon the illuminable pine barrens and Salisbury plains of the sea, two whaling vessels descrying each other at the ends of the earth, off Lone Fanning's Island or the far away King's Mills? How much more natural, I say that under such circumstances these ships should not only interchange hails, but come into still closer, more friendly, and sociable contact. And especially would this seem to be the matter, of course, in the case of the vessels owned in one seaport, in whose captains, officers, and not a few of the men are personally known to each other, and consequently have all sorts of dear domestic things to talk about. For the long-absent ship, the outward bounder, perhaps, his letter on board, at any rate... "'she will be sure to let her have some papers, "'of a date a year or two later than the last one "'on her blurred and thumb-worn files. "'And in return for that courtesy, "'the outward-bound ship would receive "'the latest whaling intelligence from the cruising grounds "'to which she may be destined, "'a thing of the utmost importance to her. "'And in degree, all this will hold true "'concerning whaling vessels crossing each other's tracks "'on the cruising ground itself, "'even though they are equally long absent from home.' for one of them may have received a transfer of letters for some third, and now far more remote vessel, and some of those letters may be for the people of the ship she now meets. Besides, they would exchange the whaling news and have an agreeable chat, for not only would they meet with all the sympathies of sailors, but likewise with all the peculiar congenialities arising from a common pursuit and mutually shared privations and perils." nor would difference of country make any very essential difference, that is, so long as both parties speak one language, as is the case with Americans and English. Though, to be sure from the small number of English whalers, such meetings do not very often occur, and when they do occur, there is too apt to be sort of shyness between them, for your Englishman is rather reserved, and your Yankee, he does not fancy that sort of thing in anybody but himself. Besides, the English whalers sometimes affect a kind of metropolitan superiority over the American whalers, regarding the long, lean Nantucketer with his nondescript provincialisms as a sort of sea peasant... But where this superiority in the English whalemen does really consist, it would be hard to say, seeing that the Yankees in one day collectively kill more whales than all the English collectively in ten years. But this is a harmless little foible in English whale hunters, which the Nantucketer does not take much to heart. Probably because he knows that he had a few foibles himself. So then, we see that of all ships separately sailing the sea, the whalers have most reason to be sociable, and so they are. Whereas some merchant ships crossing each other's wake in the mid-Atlantic will oftentimes pass on without so much as a single word of recognition, mutually cutting each other on the high seas, like a brace of dandies in Broadway, and all the time indulging, perhaps, in finical criticism upon each other's rigs. As for men of war, when they chance to meet at sea, they first go through such a string of silly bowings and scraping such a ducking of ensigns that there does not seem to be much write-down hearty goodwill and brotherly love about it at all all touching slave ship meetings. Why, they are all in such prodigious hurry, they run away from each other as soon as possible. As for pirates, when they chance to cross each other's crossbones, the first hail is, how many skulls? The same way with the whalers hail, how many barrels? And that question, once answered, pirates straight away steered apart, for they are infernal villains on both sides, and don't like to see overmuch of each other's villainous likenesses. But look at that godly, honest, ostentatious, hospitable, sociable, free and easy whaler. What does the whaler do when she meets another whaler in any sort of decent weather? She has a gam, a thing so utterly unknown to all other ships that they have never heard of that name even, and if by chance they should hear it, they only grin at it, and repeat gamesome stuff about the spouters and blubber boilers and such like pretty exclamations. Why it is that all merchant seamen, and also all pirates and men of war's men, and slave ship sailors cherish such a scornful feeling towards the whale ship, this is a question it would be hard to answer. Because, in the case of pirates, say, I should like to know whether that profession of theirs has any peculiar glory about it. It sometimes ends in uncommon elevation, indeed, but only at the gallows, and besides— When a man is elevated in that old fashion, he has more proper foundation for his superior altitude. Hence, I conclude that in boasting himself to be high-lifted above a whaleman, in that assertion, the pirate has no solid basis to stand on. But what is a gam? You might wear out your index finger running up and down the columns of dictionaries and never find the word. Dr. Johnson never attained to that erudition. Noah Webster's Ark does not hold it. Nevertheless, this same expressive word now has been many years in constant use among some 15,000 true-born Yankees. Certainly, it needs a definition and should be incorporated into the lexicon. With that view, let me learnedly define it. Gam, a noun, a social meeting of two or more whale ships, generally on a cruising ground when, after exchanging hails, they exchange visits by boat's crew, the two captains remaining for the time on board one ship, and the two chief mates on the other. There is another little item about gamming, which must not be forgotten here. All professions have their own little peculiarities of detail. So has the whale fishery. In a pirate, man-of-war, slave ship, when the captain is rowed anywhere in his boat, he always sits in the stern sheets on a comfortable, sometimes cushioned seat there, and often steer himself with a pretty little milliner's tiller, decorated with gay cords and ribbons. But the whale boat has no seat astern, no sofa or sort whatsoever, and no tiller at all. High times, indeed, if whaling captains were wheeled about the water on casters like gouty old aldermen in patient chairs— And as for a tiller, the whaleboat never admits to such effeminacy, and therefore, in the gamming of a complete boat's crew, must leave the ship, and hence, as the boat-steer or harpooner is of the number, that subordinate is the steersman upon the occasion, and the captain, having no place to sit in, is pulled off to his visit, all standing like a pine tree." And often you will notice that being conscious of the eyes of the whole visible world resting on him for the sides of two ships, this standing captain is all alive to the importance of sustaining his dignity by maintaining his legs. Nor is this any very easy matter, for in his rear is the immense projecting steering oar hitting him now and then in the small of his back, the after oar reciprocating by wrapping his knees in front. He is thus completely wedged before and behind, and can only expand himself sideways by settling down on his stretched legs. But a sudden violent pitch of the boat will often go far to topple him, because length of foundation is nothing without corresponding breadth. Merely make a spread angle of two poles and you cannot stand them up. Then, again, it would never do in plain sight of the world's riveted eyes—it would never do, I say, for this straddling captain to be seen steadying himself in the slightest particle of catching hold of anything with his hands. Indeed, as token of his entire buoyant self-command, he generally carries his hands in his trouser pockets. He generally carries his hands in his trouser's pockets. But perhaps being generally very large, heavy hands, he carries them there for ballast— Nevertheless, there would have occurred instances, well-authenticated ones too, where the captain has been known for an uncommonly critical moment or two, in a sudden squall, say, to seize hold of the nearest oarsman's hair and hold on there like grim death.